provenance sometimes can uh, make you make an object special. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of pin cushions. One of them was owned by the wife of Elliot Ness, who took down the mob. Oh uh, my gosh! And that, so all of a sudden, that pincushion has a different, yeah. uh, even though it's, it looks just like the other ones, it ha- it's different because of the provenance. Hello, and welcome to Upwards. I'm Susie Anderson, today's host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with visual artist Marianne Latieri. She's visiting us from Texas to do a talk on faith and art, as well as to lead a collage workshop titled Beauty for Ashes. Today, we're going to talk about how she uses the discarded, recycled, and broken to explore meaning, beauty, and redemption. I hope you enjoy this time with the amazing Marianne Lettieri. And Mm -hmm. so I know that, you know, part of your work as an artist deals with the whole idea of how you use space. So I want to get into that in a little bit. Um, But first, I really do want to know a little bit about your personal journey, because I know you have a BFA Mm -hmm. um, in art, and that was in drawing and printmaking. And we won't say the year that you graduated (laughs) with that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) But I... It was a while back because then you proceeded to go into this pretty long-term professional career in marketing with some really big companies. And I wonder if you can describe that. Okay. Well, why don't we start back when I was a little kid. Okay. And this will date. Everybody can do the math. I grew up on Cape Canaveral during the space race between the uh, United States and Russia. Wow. And uh, in fact, my home was acquired by the... uh, uh, the government in order to make a buffer zone for the Saturn missile project, which was the forerunner for our manned flights. But as a young child, I was living out in, basically in a marsh. Uh, we had a high, our house was on a bit of high ground in this uh, wetland, and there were no other uh, little girls to play with. So I spent my youth, my my formative years. Uh, just walking around in the in the wilderness and observing nature and and drawing and that's how I grew up and I think at that that was when I first started to see this contrast between uh, nature and progress or nature mm-hmm. and man-made things and uh, and it, and I understood juxtaposition which is now a, a, a big basis of the work that I do. And uh, I don't think I ever thought of being anything but an artist. And I went off to University of Florida and got a, a, a double major in printmaking and drawing and a minor in dance. And as soon as I got out of college, I realized, oh, there are no jobs for drawers and printmakers. <laughs> and luckily, I had um, worked at the, uh, at, as the, adver- the uh, artist uh, for the advertising department at our uh, college newspaper, which was mm-hmm. a pretty big, uh, di- big newspaper. And so I had some skills as a paste-up artist, and I went to work uh, doing commercial art. And that led me eventually to California, to Silicon Valley. Uh, the microprocessor was now invented, yeah. and it was just going, you know, that it, it was a very exciting time. And again, I saw this juxtaposition between what had been orchards. They, they mm-hmm. were all these orchards being surrounded by these big tech buildings. And again, I, I, I noticed that um, uh, contrast and, and how we would maneuver through that. And I guess I, I uh, did marketing communications at the end of my career, mostly corporate communications for a lot of big high tech companies. And at one point I decided, 
wow, you know, I really want to go back to my art. That's where my mm-hmm. roots are. And if I'm going to do it, I just have to do it. So at that time, I was working at Apple Computer. I retired, uh, so to speak, and they gave me a big going away party and gave me art portfolios and art supplies. <laughs> it was really fun. And then I started to go into this whole new world that I knew nothing about. Mm. It's like you you live, you're in one world where you know the language, you know the infrastructure, you know who's who, how it right. works. And now I'm in the art world and I don't know, I don't speak the language. I don't know how things work. And um, I decided, though, that if I was going to do this this uh, change, I was going to do it. I wasn't just going to have a hobby and, mm-hmm. you know, see what happens. I seriously started to approach being a professional artist with a practice, eventually went back to school and got my master's in spatial arts. And, um, and it's just been, you know... Um, a glorious time since then. I, right. for a while, um, I was very interested in how how do how do I find those people like me who are artists of faith? I had mm-hmm. a strong Christian faith, and I, it wasn't that I was doing uh, religious art, but certainly mm-hmm. my faith informed the art that I was mm-hmm. doing. And I couldn't really talk about it with people at my church because they didn't understand mm-hmm. art. And then I couldn't really talk about it in the art world because not all of them understood the faith component. And I actually went online and just Googled artist and Christian and see what would happen. Oh, wow. And eventually found Siva. Okay. And I, I also, Which is Christians in the Visual Christians Arts. Christians in the Visual Arts, excuse mm-hmm. me. Yes, Christians in the Visual Arts and uh, became very active in that. I also realized well, there's my tribe here in Silicon Valley. Let's who are these people? Let's find each other. Mm-hmm. And so I found about two or three artists of faith, and we started meeting in our studios. And within five years, we were about 175 people. Never did advertising or anything. It was just word of mouth. You know, someone mm-hmm. would come, it would be you know revolutionary for them, and they'd bring somebody else. And mm-hmm. so I ended up with this big ministry that I didn't really plan on. It Mm -hmm. just happened. And because I had the marketing experience, I was able to really put uh, a real rich, robust program together. Right. Um, So, yeah. And then um, I guess about 2018, um, I had been in a studio that was sponsored by the city of Palo Alto. And my uh, lease on that was going to be uh, up. And at the same time, my son, who had gone to college at Texas never came home. We decided, Aww. okay, let's move to Texas. So, mm-hmm. so now I'm in Texas, and I'm still uh, working really hard. I'm working on a show right now for um, about uh, a wilderness wetland on the east uh, part of Texas called Cattle Lake. So it's a big show that we'll be uh, doing at the um, uh, Mickelson Museum of Art in Marshall, mm-hmm. Texas. So I have um, not slowed down, uh, and it's just been um, exciting to be able to keep teaching like mm-hmm. I'm doing going to be doing here at Upper House and speaking mm-hmm. so yeah yeah I know, I was that's lo- a lot <laughs> well you you've done a lot because I was looking at your art resume which doesn't feature everything you've done <laughs> and it was five pages long single space <laughs> and I was like oh my gosh how do I narrow down what I'm going to talk to you about um, but then I realized it was pretty simple and that is that you have some themes running through your work that I think speak allowed to all of us who are feeling pressed by this world that we live in, you know, either because we're working very hard at 
jobs that take a lot of time and energy or because we're paying bills in a Mm -hmm. time when there's a lot more um, expense pressure on us. And so we're, we're living stressed lives. And but you are in your work and in your writing, you're also a beautiful writer, um, writing about things about how important it is for us to learn how to play or Mm -hmm. how important it is for us to live with our eyes open. And I just wanted to read a quote from one of the things you wrote about enchantment, which is what you're going to be talking about. And that is you quote Thomas More, contemporary theologian and philosopher who says that Western culture has lost its enchantment with the world, and we need new eyes. And when I talk to you and see how your eyes sparkle as you're mm-hmm. sharing your life, I see somebody who has a sense of enchantment and wonder. And I just wonder if you could speak to that. What is that about? I sometimes think that my I do protest art. My art is protesting a culture that rushes and clashes so much we do not see the enchantment in our ordinary lives. Hmm. And so a lot of my art is to say, pause, reflect on the brevity of our life here, Hmm. its temporality, and how exciting and enchanted it is, if you will just look. Mm -hmm. I I use found objects a lot in my art. Mm -hmm. They're just ordinary objects. But I think that they, um, in the way that I am using them, I am bringing things from the past into the future, and I'm using these objects almost as a shorthand for complex ideas, but they're objects that I that make you kind of slow down and think about, uh, where did we go? What did we do? How was our time spent here? A lot of my work I'll be using, I'll, I'll use um, like tools of, of, of hand labor, mm-hmm. both domestic and uh, and blue collar work. Mm-hmm. And to me, they're, they're saying someone spent a lifetime making mm-hmm. this thing or, or wearing it out. Mm-hmm. And I'm not dealing with nostalgia as much as I want to people to really think about what we're doing in the present. Maybe mm-hmm. today it's, it's spending time on social media or mm-hmm. video games, but mm-hmm. it is how are we using that time and trying to look at those parts of our life that uh, we shouldn't be so literal when we look at objects, and but try to see them as metaphors for something uh, that has meaning mm-hmm. and purpose. So, yeah, I'm looking at repurposing objects so that we see their meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, oh, I, okay, I did a, an early work. It was um, an assemblage in a sewing machine drawer with a picture of my grandfather's hand, and I never knew him. He died when my dad was... Uh, a baby, so mm-hmm. no one ever knew him. But it's his hand, and at the bottom of the box is a an old pair of optical lenses, glasses. I bought them from a person who's an antique dealer. Mm-hmm. To him, they were worthless because they had been mended with string. Mm-hmm. They were no longer a collectible, valuable thing. To me, a pair of eyeglasses that had been mended with string a hundred years ago that was a sacred object. That said something about mm-hmm. somebody's life, their life, their, their, something about who they were. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where you, you will look at an object and then you'll go, aha, mm-hmm. it brings back a memory or something mm-hmm. um, that touches you. There's an emotional impact 
-hmm. job basically is trying to control the emotional impact of these objects. Mm -hmm. But, oh, here's something interesting. So objects. Um, there was, uh, I think this was in the 1980s, uh, a, a, a pretty well-known uh, psychology professor. Uh, I think he was at the University of Chicago. Anyway, he was in Chicago. He did uh, a study. He wanted to see how art really impacted the consciousness of people in their homes. And he surveyed 80 different families in the Chicago area, trying to find out what what things in their homes were of value and how they responded to them. And to his surprise, no one at selected art at all. It was it was these objects that gave a sense of their purpose, their identity, who they mm -hmm. were. It might be a trophy they had won mm -hmm. or something they had made. And I found that fascinating mm -hmm. that what we valued were these objects that really had no value to anybody yeah. else. And right. I, I actually did an art installation based on this. I, I surveyed 100 people in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and the question I asked was, if you had, well, okay, in California, you have earthquakes, <laughs> mudslides, you know, it's it, there's something every season. And so you're supposed to have an evacuation plan. And I asked uh, these people in the survey, if you had to evacuate your home in a moment's notice, what non-living object would you take with you and why? Now, my, the people I talked to ranged in all ages from like a four-year-old to, you know, much older people. They ran the gamut uh, from a, a CEO of a major company to a gardener that mm -hmm. was outside my, my studio. And they also were of all different ethnic groups. And it was interesting. A few people said, oh, you know, they would save something because it was valuable or, or maybe it was, um, um, I don't know had some importance, but our practic practicality, they'd take their insurance folder. But almost everybody said an object that had something to do with their identity, their history. Mm -hmm. So so things like baby blankets and wedding rings mm -hmm. and, and um, family photo albums, these were the things they would save. Right. And so I like to take those kind of objects and repurpose them somehow into art for the same reason that it mm -hmm. makes you slow down, it kindles a memory, mm -hmm. an emotion, um, and it's something to do with our identity, mm -hmm. uh, personal as well as collective. Mm -hmm. I found um, one of your articles mentioning um, the pin cushions. You have collected um, a bunch of red pin cushions with like the green tops, and if you look mm -hmm. at them from the top, they look like tomatoes, tomatoes. which mm -hmm. I totally love. And then you have them arranged in art arrangements with um, baskets, so you you kind of are reminded of tomatoes. But then you say, if you look at every single pinhole in those pin cushions, you are seeing the action of somebody mm -hmm. in the past and. Um, what you mentioned also about the tools that you appropriated for your, you know, the patina on those tools, the oil from the hands, you're seeing the human interaction with these objects and mm -hmm. drawing a connection, I think, to the past. And I found that really beautiful. I, I have a, um, an antique match holder from when people smoked a lot, mm -hmm. right? And my, it belonged to my grandmother. And quite honestly, it's hideous. And it's one of the few things I have that came from her, so I keep it, not because I like it, mm -hmm. but just because it attaches right, me a right, little bit to right. her. And right. it's interesting, once that memory is severed, it just becomes a junky 
thing right. again. Exactly. So yeah. it's it's the memory that's embedded in there. And sometimes the surface of an object, if it shows the interaction of of human over time or age, that uh, there's something in human beings that you respond to that. Mm-hmm. I think in in the in Asia, there's a I think it's Japan. They have the the, the idea of wabi sabi. Mm-hmm. And where you find beauty in the broken mm-hmm. and the aged, um, and I think, yeah. So we are, we do respond to those things that show age. I think objects sometimes too can just be symbols. You see a face mask, you you, you know that brings right. up all kinds of, of right. ideas that we just went through with the COVID pandemic. I find that objects become enchanted. I. I think through three ways. One is identity and memory, which we've just been discussing. Another is uh, provenance. Uh, mm. That would be where somebody um, that you know owned it uh, or it represents an event. I'll, I'll use an example. In, I forget, maybe it was in the 60s. Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday to mm-hmm. President Kennedy, and she wore this amazing sparkly dress that only right. uh, that she could wear. And that dress sold for almost $5 million. It's in a, in a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. And they didn't pay $5 million. I think it was $4.8 million. They did not pay that kind of money for a dress. Right. They were buying something that represented the whole 1960s and that whole uh, era and so it's the provenance of the dress. And I think provenance sometimes can uh, make you make an object special. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of pin cushions. One of them was owned by the wife of Elliot Ness, who took down the mob. Oh, uh, my gosh. And that, so all of a sudden, that pin cushion has a different, yeah. uh, even though it's, it looks just like the other ones, it ha- it's different because of the provenance. So uh, provenance, me- uh, identity and memory. And the other thing would be metaphor and a lot of artists use objects as allegories or they 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 mean something just uh, not because of their shape and form, but because of their function or uh, something about uh, mm-hmm. the way it's presented and used uh, mm-hmm. that that makes them um, a metaphor for something else. Mm-hmm. And one of them might also be they connote if, for example, they're marked up and badly. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. they don't look very nice. They're scarred, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they can also connote human scars. Mm-hmm. Like our humanity is people who are walking through difficulties and we carry scars ourselves. So there's sometimes just the ad- that identification when we see a beat up object. No. Yes. A lot of artists who do the type of work that I do, um, they do see it as a form of, of representing reclamation, redemption. Mm-hmm. It's taking mm-hmm. the the broken, the lost, the forgotten, mm-hmm. the discarded, and mm-hmm. making it new, making it valuable mm-hmm. um, uh, through the artist's hands. And so, yeah, I do see that as, mm-hmm. a, as a metaphor for the, the Christian faith, actually. Right. And, of course, there's environmental issues as well, you know, taking uh, things that are already existing and making using what's here already. But mm-hmm. I really do see the, the correlation to the Christian idea of resurrection and redemption and reclamation. It's interesting, um, and this is kind of a funny thing, but um, because I work with these objects, they come to me. They're outside my studio door like orphan babies in baskets. People that I don't even know all over the country will send really? me things oh and say, 
they, they don't have the, the objects don't necessarily have much value. They'd be hard to sell, but somehow they're treasures in this mm. person's mind. And there's they feel by giving it to the artist, they are somehow redeeming that that object. But I've like met people in uh, McDonald's parking lots to take their old lace tablecloths that they inherited. Oh Someone sent me a quilt from Hawaii because they knew I had worked with those. I've I've received bedboards, barn doors. Oh, a dentist gave me a whole set of dental veneers. I had a, I think it was a, it was either a pediatrician or a orthopedic, orthopedist gave me a whole box of um, cast of deformed baby feet. I mean, oh my the gosh. stuff that I get. I mean, and, and I would have these open studio events at uh-huh. least twice a year and invite the public to come into my studio. And inevitably, someone would come back the next couple of days with stuff for me. <laughs> and so, I, and I never say no, but it, it is, it's amazing the type of stuff that people will th- want the artist to save. So sometimes right. I think like my art practice is like, um, it is an altar where people bring mm-hmm. their broken things to be, you know, on the, on the altar of my art making. That is such a beautiful picture, <laughs> though. I love that. Have you run out of space yet? <laughs> well, when I moved from uh, California to Texas uh-huh. a couple years ago, I really had to um, um, get rid of a lot oh. of stuff. And I, I had uh, I had asked my customers and my students to come first and just, you know, I had mm-hmm. tables set out, but mm-hmm. after a while it, it was open to the public and people were just coming and just with shopping carts. <laughs> well, I know one of the things we're going to be doing at our collage workshop is working with, and correct me if I'm wrong, working with the old Reader's Digest mm-hmm. book bindings. Like I remember growing up with the Reader's oh, Digest yes. condensed books and they're like, two inches deep, you know, mm-hmm. the book binding. And then um, those, nobody really reads them anymore. So we're going to be repurposing these book right. bindings. But I, I wanted you to share where you get some of your materials, how you collect things from like okay. ends of fabric um, rolls or however mm-hmm. it is. Because mm-hmm. some of the people in our listeners might be really interested in figuring out how they might take up some of these practices. Right. Wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, I used to just buy things because they spoke to me, but now I I'm pretty much focused on things that I know are going to be going into a body of work. Um, right now, I'm working on a th- this environmental um, a theme for that uh, museum in Marshall, Texas, and I thought to be to have integrity for that work, I am trying to only use reclaimed and repurposed materials. So instead of buying fabric, I am going to the thrift shops and repurposing clothing, um, things like that. Um, sometimes things are given to me, as I said, and those become the basis for new work. For this workshop that we're doing here at Upper House, okay, so we have the Reader's Digest books. Um, my old studio used to be right across uh, this the hallway from Friends of the Palo Alto Library, and they, mm-hmm. so they would sell books that were donated to the library to raise money. Uh, and nobody wanted the Reader's Digest books, so they would just give them to the artist, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I, and they're really wonderful. The, when, when the covers are really quite lovely, and they are made well. So for this workshop, we're using the, the Reader's Digest covers. I also found a group that works with the design trade uh, in San Francisco, 
And at the end of, you know, when they have bolts left over or the samples, you know, that they get mm-hmm. for the, the different things, it's, they used to go to landfill, but now they uh, take them and give them to this nonprofit and then they sell them at very, very cheap price to artists and teachers and just people that want mm-hmm. to, you know, to buy material. So I've, a lot of the fabric we're going to be using for these the book spines I got from there. And these are some pretty nice fabrics. I mean, you can get some beautiful right. Italian embroidered silk. Oh. You know, it just happens to have you be a little small piece. My book will be dressed better I than know. I am. <laughs> and see, and then, okay, so then I try to do uh, recycled paper. So and sometimes they'll do handmade paper uh, with at, from textile mills, the cotton uh, ends are then given to, to be made into rag uh, paper. What else are we using? Oh, all the papers that we're using for this workshop came from artist studios, uh, people that had thrown things away, old prints. So it's all paper that was just laying around different people's artist studios that they donated to this project so that we could mm-hmm. give them new life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think just, I think being aware, my husband, my poor husband, he's got to the point where he won't even throw out a, you know, a potato sack without saying, is it, is it okay to throw this out? <laughs> so yeah, I think you have to see material possibilities in everything and just be selective as, as to what's right for the type of art that you're doing. Right. And I think what I love about it is there's a certain amount of humility in using these types Mm -hmm. of materials. Sometimes I get a little bit caught up in making everything look really nice. Mm -hmm. And that means getting nice stuff, which I I may not be able to Mm -hmm. afford, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. But I think looking at things with fresh eyes and being able to say, how can I play with it? Mm -hmm. And I think getting into the idea of playing is worthwhile here because I think sometimes taking ourselves seriously sometimes gets in the way mm-hmm, of us really mm-hmm. experimenting. The true artist just plays and sometimes yeah. cool things happen. But I think when we say, oh, I don't have the right tools. Oh, I don't have the right studio space. Oh, I don't have the right materials. I want that really fancy paper. Those are just excuses for not getting the work done. Mm. So if you really want to be an artist, just go in the studio and play, just make stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, see what comes out. And you can always go get the fancy paper later, but mm-hmm. don't use it as an excuse not to get, get the work done. What is one of the things that you've made that you just felt so much joy while you were making it? Like it almost became a holy experience to make that piece of art. Oh, okay. I'll tell you. Yes. Something's coming to mind right now. And it's one that I, I just finished uh, last year. I did an installation called Come to the Table. There are four panels. They're four feet wide and 14 feet tall, 14 feet tall, each one of them. They are made with old tablecloths, table napkins, and things to wipe your hands, you know, tea towels. Okay. So they are all things from that had been used for entertaining. And I got 200 images of people and their old vintage images up to current contemporary ones of people eating around the table. And I focused on only four, four types of meals. It was the um, Thanksgiving dinner, uh, the birthday, birthday party, cutting the wedding cake, and of course, the church potluck. Oh. And I sewed all of these things hand-stitched because I thought that was, um, I wanted to have a metaphor about us joining together. So the hand stitching, there are thousands of stitches in these things 
but all the photos have been transferred to fabric and and sewn onto these tablecloths. And I, it was so fun looking at all these photos of people. It, it was, it's our history. It's so mm. American, you know. Mm-hmm. We gather and do this Thanksgiving thing, mm-hmm. and it didn't matter whether they were eating uh, a Chinese food or a huh. turkey you had to gather for Thanksgiving, right. you know. And so that gave me a lot of joy working on that and just seeing the collective history of all of us enjoying uh, camaraderie and friendship. Uh, yeah, time with family or friends around a table, around food. That's really fun <laughs> to imagine. Um, I When I think back over my life, if I could take something with me, um, it would be those memories it, mm-hmm. I mean, you talked to people about what they would take with them physically, but I couldn't even think of anything when you were asking that survey question about what I would take with mm-hmm. me that really matters to me. Mm-hmm. It is those memories. And the fact that you were able to make that into an art piece to me is really, oh, thank you. it's really beautiful. Well, yeah. I think those kind of gatherings, they really do bring the structure to our lives. I mean, mm-hmm. you 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 know that Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever the those major events mm-hmm. are in your family, that's how you organize your whole history, how mm-hmm. you think of your your life, the people that were mm-hmm. in your life. Uh, it is those kind of gatherings that mm-hmm. become the the infrastructure. Yeah. And in your case, also the fuel for your for art. art. Yes. Right. Yes. Wow. There was um, something um, you said earlier, too, about just getting into the studio and not using, not having perfect um, materials as an excuse to avoid making the art. I'm wondering when you first decided that I'm going to make art my profession, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, was it hard for you to do that? Did you ever feel like stuck as an artist? Like I'm not really even sure where to start now that I'm pushing my life in this direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that hard for you? Oh, yes. I still stuck. I mean, I don't really? think you ever get unstuck. I mean, to me, that art, um, it's kind of hard work for me anyway. Mm-hmm. I find you have this idea. I always have ideas, tons of ideas, but then I have to go execute them. And that's when I get stuck. Mm-hmm. And um, and you have, it's not, I, I heard one artist friend, she said, it's like going into an abyss and you have to mm. bring something back up. So there's always that part of art making where you are struggling. Mm-hmm. If you if you never struggle, I'm not saying you always have to, but if you never struggle, maybe you need to dig a little bit deeper in your art because it, it, it mm-hmm. does for me uh, require that kind of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes you do pull something really cool back up. Mm-hmm. But I think getting stuck is just part of the mm-hmm. part of my profession. Right. Um, so tomorrow you're going to be talking about enchantment of the ordinary. And I don't want to really have you talk about that too much because people can watch mm-hmm, that presentation mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. our YouTube channel. But I do wonder um, if you were to, say, talk to your son these days. He's a musician in a great band called Snarky Puppy, <laughs> which is the best name ever for a rock band. Um, if you and he were talking about what enchantment means to you, what would you say to him? I think paying attention, paying attention to 
the small things that are all around you. And I think he does. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed he just did a wrote a piece called uh, that was inspired by watching his wife and little daughter dancing mm-hmm. in the in the uh, living room. I think that's enchantment when you can pause, find wonder in what's going on around you. And that's what I would say. Pay attention. Pay attention to those little things that are happening. And they might end up being, you know, a song or, or right. something. But it is, it, that is, so often you will think, oh, I'm going to be nominated for a Grammy or, oh, I got a new job or, or oh, you know, we're, we're buying a house. Those are all really important things. But in between mm-hmm. all the ordinary, mm-hmm. we have to get up and make the breakfast and take our kid to school. That's what most of your mm-hmm. life is. Mm-hmm. And so pay attention to that because that's, that is really mm-hmm. where the bulk of your time is going right. to be. Marianne, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for sharing yourself and your insights so openly during this conversation and also during your sessions at Upper House. And to our listeners, Thank you for being here today. If you want to dive deeper into faith and art with Marianne or any of our other guest artists, I encourage you to head over to our Upper House YouTube channel. There you will find many offerings that might interest you. And if you happen to be a writer in the Madison area, please check out our Jumpstart Saturday sessions led by writers Susie Jensen and Cameron Anderson. You'll find those on our website. Blessings to you all.